My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you money. Because my job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You know what most of the stocks that have exploded higher this earnings season have in common? They had already gone down hard going into the quarter. Now, we have seen this over and over and over again, including today's session where the Dow dropped 15 points, but the S&P advanced 1%, and the Nasdaq gained 1.37%. This time, the much-derided Facebook made a phenomenal comeback. General Electric returned to double digits. And Apple tacked on a second update. These stocks are all acting like coiled springs. Now, this morning, it looked like it would be a nasty session. But the strength in these stocks helped the market to blossom from an ugly duckling into a beautiful swan. It's a nice cherry on top of the S&P 500, which, by the way, gave us its biggest monthly gain in three years, up 7.9%. Wasn't 2019 supposed to be a bad year? All right, let's go through these one by one. Facebook rocketed higher, attacking on nearly 11%. That's right, 11% gain, which is a really big deal when you're talking about a $432 billion company. The turn here, frankly, is nothing short of astounding. When we last left Facebook, it was considered to be roadkill. The social media's titan's obituary had been written over and over again by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and pretty much every other major publication under the sun. Everything but my penny saver that they keep throwing on my lawn. The negative publicity from Facebook's seemingly endless privacy scandals had done some serious damage, we thought. The last two quarters were downright awful, which is why the stock plummeted from 218 in July down to $123 on that fabled Christmas Eve session. The parade of horrible headlines really seemed like it was hurting the business. We've heard of so many people, so many celebrities leaving Facebook. At the same time, the company's costs soared. It was a terrible situation. Revenue slowing dramatically, costs rising dramatically, and some of the worst press I have ever seen for a company that hasn't killed anyone. And what was the fallout? I don't know. You know what? After last night, it's unclear. Maybe there wasn't any real damage done. Maybe few people actually cared about these scandals. Facebook's users are growing smartly. Its revenues are screaming higher and costs are trending down. There are 2 billion people who check with the Facebook service every day. 2 billion people. I mean, where the heck else are the advertisers going to get that kind of reach? Local newspapers, national newspapers, radio, skywriters, cable? I don't think so. Plus, you could argue that the company simply made itself too essential, too indispensable, too much of the fabric of your life for us to stay mad at him for long. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg told such a compelling story about helping advertisers reach hard to reach consumers, particularly small and mid-sized businesses, that I wanted to grab the phone and place an ad for the Longshoreman, my wife's new restaurant in Brooklyn. I'm not kidding. That's how fabulous that call was. You ended up raising a metaphorical glass to them, a glass full of money. So where does the stock go from here? All right, let me introduce you to a term that I love, okay? It's one of my absolute favorite terms. It's most beautiful in the business world, and it's leverage. I'm not talking about debt here. I'm talking about 
operating leverage. That's what happens when your costs stay fixed, but your revenues soar. When you have operating leverage, you can practically print money. And Facebook is back in the leverage business. I say back because I took a look at what the analysts were forecasting for the fourth quarter when they made their estimates last year in 2018. And guess what? Facebook came very close to making those numbers. That is a comeback. Turns out, while Facebook may mistreat us and the press made them sound downright abusive, there are two billion masks out there. Two billion masters who thrilled to check their feeds and post content can be advertised against and use other services. And those ads are personalized to you, even if you resent the Facebook snooping on you. That's why I think the stock still has a lot more upside, even if today's glorious run. I know this is going to sound nutty. The stock is cheap. And that's just one example. Yesterday, we saw the exact same kind of coiled spring action in Apple. That stock's now given us the 13-point gain since CEO Tim Cook came on this show a few weeks ago and told us the future was brighter than most people seem to realize. Back then, Cook said he was optimistic about Apple's long-term success. I sure hope you listened. Tim Cook is a bankable CEO who is always innovating. And mark my words, this, this watch is the next big thing. And it's going to be because of the health care initiatives that are going to come with it. Remember the last time Apple stock melted down back in 2016? It traded down to the low 90s, which is when Cook came here, right here. He sat right here. And he told us the company's best days weren't behind him like so many of these Analysts were talking about, oh, geez, I can't talk to her right now. Geez, that would be awful. So many of these analysts were uh, saying that it was the worst day, you know, the worst is ahead, the best was past. Sure enough, the stock rallied all the way to 233, where it peaked last year. Yes, indeed. Okay, guilty. It's pulled back since then. But once again, Cook came on our air before the quarter, but after the negative pre-announcement, practically called the bottom. To me, this confirms that you should simply own Apple. Don't try to trade it. Why not? The service revenue stream keeps growing. I actually, some people think it reaccelerated. Most of the weakness in the iPhone is coming from China, which is experiencing a nasty slowdown, as we know, and a rise in trade uh, uh, trade war. Uh, by that's induced a lot of economic nationalism. Plus, the strong dollar makes Apple's pricey phones even more expensive versus the competition. But man, if President Trump can work out a trade deal with the Chinese, I bet Apple could become, well, let's just say, close to it, maybe a two hundred dollar stock again. What else? We may need to replace the G in FANG, which used to stand for Google, with G as in General Electric. Today, GE reported a better than expected quarter and finally gave us a sense of confidence that the worst is over. The new CEO, Larry Culp, ooh, he's smart fella, he laid out a roadmap that could eventually get GE off the do not resuscitate list and put it in the ICU. Believe me, that's a major improvement. That's what happens when you take the debt down, which is what he's doing. Now, this story's a bit more ethereal. Culp didn't talk about big numbers in the out years or make awesome projections. He was more like Hercules. He's cleaning out the Aegean stables. In fact, he's doing all seven labors of Hercules. While Culp still has to deal with the manure pile that is GE's power division, he's tidied up the Justice Department investigation of the subprime transgressions, thank heavens, accelerated the orders in healthcare to an astounding 7%. Figure, he's going to sell a lot of that, too. Figured out how to get his arms around the long-term care headache, although you know there could always be another shoe to drop when it comes to that issue, and put into place his own management team that has nothing to do with the old regime. He's going root and branch, people, and when he downsizes power dramatically, we're going to think of GE as a nifty industrial again. No wonder it rallied 11%. Hey, back over 10, a lot of institutions are going to flock to it. Of course, not every down and outer was able to make a comeback. Dow DuPont got slammed today, plummeting 9%. 
And this charitable trust name was already well off its highs. This quarter was the poster child for why Fed Chief Jay Powell had to back away from his commitment to a series of rate hikes because many of its industrial business lines just got crushed by the slowdown in December. We may have to create a new line item in the scorecard of earnings season, HBP, which stands for Hit by Powell. Given the weakness in Dow DuPont's auto and housing-related businesses, the blame can be laid largely on the shoulders of the old Fed chairman, the one who got a little reckless out of the gate in October. The new patient pal actually makes me feel like Dow DuPont is a buy, not a sell down here, because, well, the company's breaking itself up. But HPP is a brutal designation, and I didn't like this quarter one bit. Frankly, I felt very disappointed in myself. It's not up to management. Remember, when I come out and I say I like something, that's on me, okay? I felt awful that I stuck with this one got to live with your own mistakes. Now, the flip side here is that when a stock runs up and ahead of earnings, it's setting itself for failure unless it's perfect. Amazon had a Goliath move going to the quarter, and the nitpicks are all over for some weakness in the gross margins. I get that. Some people are going to say numbers should come down. Oh, I hope the thing comes down so you can get in. Same thing with PayPal, which did just fine, but its stock came in too hot. We'll speak to them later in the show. Microsoft, too. It was a fine quarter, but not fine enough given how much it had run. Here's the bottom line. Expectations are everything during earnings season, and when they've come down into the gutter, well, all it takes are some decent numbers and your stock can explode higher. So scour the losers here. They may be ready for the comeback of a lifetime. The winners, come see, come saw. Let's go to Scott in Indiana. Scott. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Scott. What's up? Yeah, first time caller. Okay. Hey, I've owned Qualcomm for several years now and held through the NXP deal. And now, despite the near 5% dividend, it appears the FTC has joined the rest of the world against Qualcomm and its royalties. Should I continue to hold through this stock? I am actually worried about that stock, and let me tell you why. I am worried because they are in a very nasty battle with Apple. And when I saw the stock go down, even though that the quarter was good, they lost a decision in Germany, one more decision in Germany. Holy cow. These guys are rolling the dice. They should go hat in hand, and settle with Apple. But no, not them. So I don't like the risk-reward here. I'm sorry. I mean, maybe I just don't like it. Let's go to Nathan in Missouri. Nathan. Hey, Jim. Big booyah to you. Very good. Booyah back. All right. So my question is regarding Tupperware. I've owned Tupperware since the big uh, decrease early last year. And... With Tupperware's fourth quarter over and 2018 behind us, leaving a lot to be desired, do you think that the uh, dividend cut, changing of leadership, uh, reinvestment into the company, be able to reshape this company? And I'm make not going to recommend company? a stock that cuts a dividend. There are too many companies who want to boost the dividend, too many companies that are doing things right. I'm going to have to take a pass on Tupperware. I'm always happy to have the company come on. But boy, that was really disappointing and daunting and reminds you that, by the way, in the end, these are just pieces of paper. They're not stuff you can live in. That's why I always say don't use margin. Don't borrow money to own stocks. Okay, look, it's the beautiful game of low expectations. If you beat them, you're a winner. Hey, oh man, tonight, a revenue miss and lower than expected outlook are weighing on PayPal today. But could growth in the company's Venmo business make the stock a buy? I'm talking with the CFO after earnings. Then, is it time to forget about Fang? I'll tell you where I'm shifting my focus. And last week, Wells Fargo CEO Kate Muir, Tim Sloan, and told me he's not going anywhere. Uh, but what does Senator Elizabeth Warren have to say about that? 
I'm speaking with the Massachusetts, well, let's say firebrand tonight. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. What the heck just happened to the stock of PayPal? Now, here's a stock I've liked for ages, ever since it was spun off by eBay in the 30s, way back in 2015. Since then, the online payments kingpin has had a remarkable run, but today the stock got slammed. It looked like it went headfirst into a brick wall. Problem? Last night, PayPal reported what I guess many were interpreting as a mixed quarter. A two-cent earnings beat off a 67-cent basis, slightly weaker than expected revenue, up 13% year-over-year. And even though some parts of the business were red-hot, like their Venmo payment sharing up, uh, app, hey, that was up 20, uh, 80%, the company's forecast for the next quarter was softer than Wall Street anticipated. The guidance was only a little disappointing for the stock, which is owned by my travel trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. But perhaps because the stock had run up going into the quarter, it got slammed today. It's down more than $3 or 4% on a pretty good day for the NASDAQ. I think these numbers were pretty solid, and the bull thesis remains intact. Stock did just get a bit ahead of itself. Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with C- with the CFO, not the CEO, but the CFO of PayPal, John Rainey, to find out more about the quarter and where the company's headed. Mr. Rainey, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. It's great to be back on the show. All right, John. I, look, you guys put up some pretty good numbers, but I know that the stock lagged. Some people thought that the guidance was a little light compared to what else we're looking for. Can you tell us what goes into your forward guidance and whether we should say, you know what, maybe this thing is uh, slowing down as a company? Sure. Well, first, Jim, we were really pleased with the quarter, and it capped off what was a great 2018. We had 26% EPS growth and and we had a record for the number of net new customers that came to our platform in the quarter at 13.8 million. So really pleased there. And we affirmed the guidance that we gave for full year 2019 that we just provided back in October. But to your point on the, on the first quarter guidance, there's, there's probably three things that stand out that are impacting us. And in order, uh, eBay is the first. So we still have 10% of the volume on our platform, which we, is eBay's business. And as eBay has discussed, they're expecting slower growth, so that has an impact on our business. The second, like a lot of companies are facing right now, is with a stronger dollar, we have uh, foreign currency pressure. And with 20% of our business, roughly 20% of our business that is cross-border, that has an impact on us as well. And then lastly, and somewhat tied to the, the currency pressure, is there are pockets in, in, in regions of the world right now where we see slower growth than we did uh, at this point in time last year. Well, let's go over that top one, eBay. There's an outfit I'm pretty familiar with, Elliott Management. They're none too happy with the way eBay has been <clears> run. It does seem that maybe there's a bit of a shakeup. You know, got a couple divisions classified. You know that company really well. Uh, they've got the StubHub and they've got the main, main uh, business of which, frankly, it's stagnant. I mean, can you get involved to try to make them better? Well, we're, we're actually, we work with eBay quite closely to try to power e-commerce experiences that that help our business but also help theirs and as i said they're still a a significant part of our business 10 percent of our volume today and will remain meaningful over the next couple years well i mean can you uh, join elliot and try to get this thing to go better 
you know, we're very focused on our relationship with them as, uh, as, a, as a partner, and we're going to try to do things that are of mutual benefit to our customers. Okay, fair enough. Now, how about Venmo? We saw you're starting to monetize it. It seemed like that people overlooked that because of worrying about what you talked about with the currency and eBay, uh, just basically uh, disregarding what I think is the beginning of what could be a monster good revenue stream. Well, Venmo stands out as really one of the, the shining parts of the quarter and the year for that matter. And uh, you noted in your opening comments, but we saw 80% volume growth in Venmo in the quarter. And importantly, that's a two-point acceleration from, from what we saw in the previous quarter. And in part of that, it's the, the monetization activities that we see right now. So 29% of Venmo customers have used it in some way that we're able to monetize. And we gave some guidance that when we exited 2018, we were monetizing Venmo to the rate of a $200 million run rate annually. And that's still a very fast-growing part of our business. So we're very excited about that. And, and there's, there's many aspects to that. There's instant cash withdrawal. There's the ability to pay with Venmo at stores. And we also have a, a Venmo card now. And that's important because it allows the Venmo user to use this in an offline physical world. And when we look at the, the top spin categories of where that's used, there are things like grocery stores restaurants. These are everyday use occurrences, which really um, plays into what our objective is with Venmo and PayPal broadly, is to become an everyday part of our customers' financial lives. Well, you know, you've been a straight shooter with us. There's always people who just put, really, they nitpick. I mean, I heard some people say, well, listen, what the problem is, is Bank of America Zelle. And then another person, no, the problem is Square. Everybody's coming after them. Isn't there room for everybody in this? Well, I, I do believe that this is not going to be a winner-take-all game. And, and I also believe that with the secular tailwinds that we see in our business, there is a bit of a tendency of a, of a rising tide lifting all ships. But we're in an excellent competitive position here. We've got over 250 million customers on our platform operating in 200 markets across the world and 20 million merchants. And it's putting those two together, the 250 million plus consumers with the 20 million merchants, which is really where the va- PayPal value proposition shines. Now, I remember when I spoke with uh, Dan Schumann, we had this really great couple-hour teacher, and he was talking about everybody who has a cell phone uh, who is in an area where there's not a lot of banking is a potential PayPal customer. Now, he talked about $2 billion. Interestingly enough, Facebook talked about $2 billion people today who are on Facebook. Is that your, tar- is that your total addressable market, you think? Because that would be a pretty great market. Well, the addressable market is enormous, and, and Dan alluded to the 2 billion people. Let me, let me put a, a finer point on that. There are, by many estimates, as many as 2 billion people in the world that are what we describe as underserved financially, so meaning that they don't have access to a check-in account, a savings account, even a home mortgage. But the unique aspect of those 2 billion people is that roughly 60 to 70% of them have a mobile device. And so with that mobile device, we can put a lot of the technology and financial services in the palm of their hand. So they don't need to go into uh, a bank branch on a, on a, on a, on a corner market to uh, access those financial services. So that's a big part of what we're after. And, and a lot of people recognize that this is a huge addressable market. And we believe that the best way to capture that addressable market is by partnering with the likes of these technology platforms right. and major FIs to where we can go out and build on our complementary strengths. Well, to me, it sounds like it's all systems going. Just had the misfortune of a stock that ran right into the quarter, and that's what matters to me. That's what really happened. That's John Rainey, CFO of PayPal. Thank you so much, John. Good to see you. Thanks a lot, Jim. 
All right, like I said at the top of the show, if it ran into the quarter, and boy, did this one ever, you know what? Profit-taking. I think that's a pretty darn good story. John Ramey, CFO of PayPal. I would stick with it, and I'd stick with Craig. Maybe it's time to stop focusing so much on FANG, the acronym we coined years ago for Facebook, Amazon, sometimes Apple, Netflix, and Google and Alphabet. These were once the hottest secular growth stories in technology, but that's no longer the case, even after the terrific runs in Apple yesterday and Facebook today. These days, if you want performance, the cloud kings and their smaller heirs apparent, the cloud princes, are where it's at. Last night, ServiceNow reported a blowout quarter with 30% plus growth across the board. This is a cloud software company that automates all sorts of back office stuff so that your employees can spend more time dealing with clients. The stock surged 26 bucks today, perhaps also after the great interview we had with Mr. Donahoe last night, John Donahoe is the CEO, because that kind of growth is practically unheard of for a $34 billion company, unless it happens to be, yes, indeed, a cloud king based in the cloud. It's also why ServiceNow has rallied 49% from its December lows. When you look at the action in the cloud kings and the cloud princes so far this year, they've been trouncing the S&P 500, which is up 7.9%. That's not measly, but holy cow. I mean, these gains are great. ServiceNow is the best of the bunch, but it's got some stiff competition. Let's go through them from worst to first. The weakest cloud king is Adobe. I bet this company can deliver a whamma jamma quarter when it reports in March, perhaps taking stock back from $247 today to its all-time high of $277. These days, I view Adobe as the principal engine behind e-commerce. Everything seems to run through Adobe, and last night Visa told us that e-commerce is growing at three times the rate of brick and mortar. So the fact that the stock's only up 9% year-to-date may be an opportunity, even if it's already run 21% from its fourth quarter lows. Speaking of opportunities, VMware. VMware reported the second best quarter after ServiceNow, yet so far it's only up 10% this year. VMware remains the best way to onboard to the cloud. The stock's rallied more than 37% since the low. Oh, and it's also paid you a $26 special dividend. We own Salesforce.com for the charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. I think its 11% gain seems low compared to the company's outsized 26% growth rate. Now, Salesforce is a $114 billion company, for heaven's sakes. That growth rate is stunning for such a large business, but it's kind of business as usual for the cloud. Sure, the software as a service pioneer has seen its stock vault nearly 34% from its fourth quarter nadir, but I bet it's got more room to run. Next up, Workday. It's been winning contracts left and right. And many of them, by the way, have come from other slower-growing competitors. And uh, and that's as it moves from digitizing human resources to the much bigger financial space of management, financial management. And that is, I think, can really grow in size much quicker than HR. The stock's gained more than 13% for 2019, but I don't know if that's enough, even as it served 54% from its lows. Then there's Splunk, which had the misfortune to report smack in the middle of the big downturn last month. No matter, stock's still up 19% for the year because there's incessant demand for data mining, and no one mines data better than Splunk. Sure, it is up 49% from its fourth quarter lows, but it never should have gone down there to begin with. Hey, how about the last king? It hasn't gone out much at all this year. That's because it's Red Hat which got a gigantic takeover bid from IBM, of all people, a 63% premium to where it was trading. I think IBM will come out of this one just fine if they can keep Red Hat CEO Jim Whitehurst at the top of their gigantic food chain. Now, not long after we anointed the cloud kings, we rolled out a list of smaller cloud princes. How are they doing? Since 2019 began, Cooper Software's up 38, 
Okta's rising 29%. HubSpot and New Relic both have rallied 25%. Atlassian's up 10%. Only Tableau Software has failed to beat the market with a 6% gain. Why are these cloud stocks doing so well in such a choppy environment? Simple. They weren't HBP which, like I told you at the top of the show, stands for hit by pal. These are classic worldwide secular growth stories that don't need a strong economy because they help other businesses trim the fat and increase their margins. And businesses always want to cut costs. So when someone says the king is dead, you just come back and say, long live the king. Unless, of course, the king is Elvis. Chuck in Massachusetts. Chuck. Booyah. This is for Chuck and Chuck from Boston. Here's a kid with horse sense. What's up? Chuck. Thanks for taking our call. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate it. We're both both longtime fans. Uh, Francesca's nine. She's nine. been watching. Nine and loves probably. the show. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, she had a little bobblehead. I think one of her first words was booyah. What happened to my bobblehead? I think I smashed it. Yes. Merger. Yeah. Okay. Um, my question is, uh, looking to invest in the cybersecurity space, and uh, actually it's a local company here in Boston uh, called Rapid7. I'm just wondering your thoughts on that one. You and your nine-year-old daughter have uh, have skunked me. That is one that you stumped the chump, and I do not know it. I've got to come back and do it. I mean, I've heard. I've looked at Rapid Seven. It's a Boston company because we out to San Francisco. We have known them, uh, but we will do the work. Wow, 52 week high today. Looks like you and she have a winner. Long live cloud royalty. It's surely alive. Hey, much more man moneyhead. Howard Schultz called the plan ridiculous. Bloomberg compared it with chaos in Venezuela. But what does Senator Elizabeth Warren have to say about the proposal to tax wealthy Americans? I'm talking with her tonight. Then my exclusive with Meritor. Is it time to take this trucking company off the highway and steer it towards your portfolio after yesterday's incredible 10% move? And all your calls rapid fire. Tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with... Kramer. Last Friday, we interviewed Tim Sloan. He's the CEO of Wells Fargo. And he talked about the many ways his bank is trying to move past its scandals, become a better corporate citizen. But at least one person in the audience wasn't buying it. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, the professor turned consumer advocate turned possible Democratic presidential candidate, who's been perhaps the biggest critic of Wells Fargo in particular and the financial industry in general. Warren's got some big ideas, too, including a 2% wealth tax on the ultra-rich. That's controversial, especially on Wall Street. Now, earlier today, we got a chance to speak with Senator Elizabeth Warren, and I'm thrilled any time a presidential contender feels like stopping by the show. So take a look. Senator Warren, thank you so much for coming back to Mad Money. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Okay, I want to start with, we had Tim Sloan on last week, the CEO of Wells Fargo, and he talked about how he feels, and I quote, that he's the right person to run this company, and I believe that. One, because I care deeply about the company, been there for 31 years. I know how the company operates. I've taken responsibility. I don't think you should be criticized for taking responsibility, acknowledging the mistakes. Why is that a bad stance? Wait just a minute. Explain to me exactly how it is that he's taken responsibility. Let's just do a quick rundown. Let me see if I can remember all the ways. He was part of that management team that enacted the policies that caused uh, millions of customers to get cheated on fake accounts. Let's see. And then there was the scandal over adding uh, car insurance and pet insurance and all kinds of charges to customers' accounts, putting people into default. Oh, and then there was the fact that Wells Fargo targeted communities of color 
for the worst mortgages costing, we don't know how many people, their homes. Uh, let's see, and, and what else was it? Oh, I remember. And then there's this latest piece that comes out that Wells Fargo markets itself to uh, colleges and universities to use their credit card as an exclusive offering to students. And Wells Fargo charges mm, about three times as much as every other bank that's doing the same sort of thing. In other words, Wells Fargo has had a long-standing policy of scamming, squeezing, and cheating its customers. Tim Sloan has been right at the heart of that, and he wants to keep right on running Wells Fargo. Look, the central problem at Wells Fargo is they need a change in culture. I'm not the only one who said that. Their own regulators have said it. People on the street have said it. You don't get a change in culture by having the same guy who had his finger in every single scandal still running the place. Senator, the Sherman Sterling outside direct report, 110 pages, pretty thorough, did indicate that he was not implicated and did not directly have anything to do with the cross-sell. Do you think the report was a whitewash? So let me just do both halves. They pick one scandal and say, gee, we don't think he was directly implicated. I'm sorry, he was part of the management team. This was a massive fraud. So whether his participation was simply to cover up his ears or cover up the evidence that he knew what was going on, either way, he should be pitched out. Now, uh, uh, Janet Yellen, who is a terrific Fed chairwoman, had a long, long time to look at this, and she decided to sanction the bank, but she did not feel that Mr. Sloan should be fired. I wonder if you think that Janet Yellen, and she was the regular, and Jay Powell, current regular, didn't do their job here. Look, my view is, if you really want to see change when a financial institution, especially one of these giants, behaves so badly, so consistently, so many different times, then the time has come, Jim, to start holding the executives accountable. You know, just imposing a fine on Wells Fargo, you and I both know who pays for that, the shareholders, shareholders. right? Until you start saying, you personally, Buster, your rear end is now in the crack, we're not going to get any change. So my view is he should be pushed out because that's the signal that should be sent, not only to all the other executives of Wells Fargo, but the executives of the other giant financial institutions who, you know, are kind of on the sidelines deciding whether they're going to cover their ears next time something looks not quite right, All right. in their organization. Fair enough. Well, I have to tell you, Senator, you've also been in the news lately about billionaires. Yep. Uh, you have said, and I just quote, uh, billionaires like Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg, who, by the way, thinks that your proposal for ultramillionaires is something that they would do in Venezuela, uh, want to keep a rigged system in place that benefits only them yeah. and their buddies. Now, I, 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 Howard Schultz created an institution that has given, that's put food on the table for 300,000 people and offered a chance for baristas to go to college. Michael Bloomberg, I think you have to agree, has done more for higher education in terms of trying to get people who are not wealthy into these schools. These are two paragons of Elizabeth Warren's view. And that's great. But here's the deal. They made a bazillion dollars. And now the question is, do they have to pay a little portion of that 
to make sure that we're reinvesting so the next kid gets a chance and the next kid gets a chance and the next kid gets a chance. You know, that's basically how the system is supposed to operate. Not, not just because someone gives as a matter of charity, but because that is your obligation. That's part of the social contract. That's part of being a citizen of the United States of America. When you make it big, when you get so much from this country, then you've got to take a little piece of that and you've got to put it back in so that we can build a strong education system, pre-K through college for all of our kids, well, how about so that the, we can build that infrastructure. But how about those who have taken the pledge, so to speak, to give half their wealth? Should we just perhaps, maybe you craft legislation says that money should go to make it so more poor people can go to school? No, no come on, Jim, you're starting at the wrong end of the, of the deal. The thing about taxes is everybody who is an ultra-millionaire has to pay a portion, not just those who sign up, not just those who wave their hands and say, I'll do it, as long as it goes to the particular charity I like. Good for them on their charitable works. But every single one of the ultra-millionaires, that thinnest one-tenth of one percent slice at the top, they got to take, in my view, 2%, that's not unreasonable, to say you're going to put that back into the kitty to reinvest for child care, to reinvest to bring down the student loan debt burden, to reinvest in a Green New Deal, to reinvest in a future for all of America. Okay, so we want to go with Michael Boomer again, a man I know you admire. He says when asked about the wealth tax, it's probably unconstitutional and that there's an example to avoid for anyone favoring radical redistribution, which is what he calls it. It's called Venezuela. He almost sounds like that you are take, making a war against so-called oligarchs in Russia. I know you're a capitalist. I know you're not declaring war against billionaires. How do we reconcile this? Look, all I can say is we've watched Michael Bloomberg. We have watched uh, uh, billionaires stand up and say, look, I want to run for president. And one of the first planks in my plan is going to be no new taxes for billionaires. Look, all I'm asking for is a little slice from the tippy, tippy top, a slice that would raise, and this is the shocking part, Jim, about $2.75 trillion over the next 10 years. That's money we need so that every kid in this country has a decent childcare opportunity, has an opportunity for pre-K, has an opportunity for a decent school. All we're asking is when you make it that big, put something back in and we're asking for a little fairness in the system. You know that top one-tenth of 1% 1 this year Taxes all in, they're going to pay about 3.2% of their total worth in taxes to help keep everything running around here. You know what the 99% is going to pay this year? They're going to pay about 7.2% of their wealth. That's more than twice as much. What I want is I want these billionaires to stop being freeloaders. I want them to pick up their fair share. That's how we make a system that works not just for the rich and the powerful, but works for all of us. Well, there you go. I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for putting the other side to Tim Sloan and, of course, fleshing out your plan, which I know a lot of people do favor. I want to thank you, <laughs> Senator Elizabeth Warren, for coming on Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Mad Money's back after the break.
It is time! It's time for the lightning round! Let's go, let's go, let's And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round! I'm going to start with Keith in South Carolina. Keith! Hey, Kramer. Hey, I was wondering about Groupon and the earnings that are coming you know, up. I, I, you know, I, I, I'll be candid. I, I like Groupon, and I have been wrong. I keep seeing real value here, so I'm not going to desert it, but it has not been a good one. Let's go to John in New York. John. Jim, I'm 69 and a long-time listener believer in you. I bought 500 shares of Citicorp on 7-16-2008, $15.90 per share for total investment of $7,900. The stock did a reverse 10 for one split, so now I have only 50 shares, $2,600 value. In the brokerage account uh, statement, as a long-time okay. 10-year t- investor in Citibank, I lost $5,300. All this right. Is over two- Remember, we only care where something's going, not where it's come from. And I've got to tell you, I think Citi is the cheapest of the bank stocks that sells, sells way through its tangible book. They are going to continue to buy back stock. It has been disappointing, but it is inexpensive. I understand. Let's go to Larry, Rhode Island, please. Larry. Hey, Dr. Kramer. Hey, Larry. Larry from beautiful downtown Jamestown, Rhode Island. It's gorgeous there, actually. It's near uh, CVS, which is down again. It's starting to really kill me. What's going on? Uh, I'm a, a, a stockholder in that as well. As with most stocks that pay dividends, as prices fall, the dividend rate goes up. With a return now over 11%, is now the time to buy PEI. You know, I, I just saw, I mean, that's a, you know, it's a Philadelphia outfit. And, and, you know, Joseph Cardano, Dardino came on the show. Uh, I, I got to talk to him again. I mean, you know, we thought that they were through the worst of it, and they don't seem to be. This is one where he's an honest, terrific guy, and I invite him to come back. He can bring those soft pretzels again. They were darn good. And let's get the skinny right from him. I need to go to Roshna in Utah. Roshna. Hi, Jim. Uh, I have a question on Honda. Is that a buy or a sell? I'm not recommending any, any automakers. It's just, life's too short. It's just too hard. I'm in a tent with GM. I actually have been saying a lot of positive things about Tesla. I hate it when the CFO quits, let him quit a second time. But I got to tell you, I thought that they actually had a decent quarter. But it's not. Uh, it's a balance sheet issue, and I don't have the faith. Ted in Georgia. Ted. Hey, thanks for everything you do, Kramer. Uh, what do you think about Night Swift transportation for long-term investment? Quarter was okay. Uh, Night Swift's okay. I would actually prefer uh, United Parcel after that terrific quarter today, and they give you good yield. And I think that they're back, and they're big, and I'd like them. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. a lot of great quarters so far this earnings season to the point where some of these blowouts aren't getting enough attention or we just yawn about them. Take Meritor, MTOR. It's a company that makes truck parts, specifically drivetrain, braking, and suspension systems. After rocketing higher in 2017, Meritor's stock has been put through the meat grinder last year, even though the company kept delivering excellent numbers. I think investors were terrified of owning anything that seemed remotely connected to the auto industry, even when this is much more of a play on trucks, not cars. When the company reported in November, CEO Jay Craig told anyone who would listen that Meritor 
Bellator was in great shape. We know there's a massive shortage of truckers, and thus a lot of trucking capacity is needed. But even the most bullish of bulls couldn't have predicted the numbers we got earlier this week. On Tuesday, Meritor delivered a monster 20-cent earnings beat off a 59-cent basis, higher than expected revenue, up 15% year-over-year, much higher than anticipated. Best of all, management raised their full-year earnings guidance substantially. That's why the stock jumped almost 10% yesterday, and it's now up more than 20% year-to-date. But even up here, it trades at six times earnings. That's too cheap. Let's dig deeper with Jay Craig. He's the president and CEO of Meritor. Get a better sense of the quarter and how his company's doing. Mr. Craig, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Have a seat. Have a seat, Jay. All right, Jay, I used to teach uh, how to value stocks at Goldman Sachs a long Mm -hmm. time ago. But I always said that there's a company that sells well below the market in terms of its price earnings multiple, but it is growing well beyond what the market is. Correct. And it's got a secular growth story, not necessarily cyclical, uh, with some cyclicalities, okay? It's not really possible that it could be at a certain price. You're at six times earnings. Correct. It doesn't make sense. And I want to try to explain to people how, but I can't. Well, I think uh, that message is something we want to make clear. We've grown 20% above our end markets over the last few years. We've grown revenue over a billion dollars, 25% in the last two to three years. And over half of that has just been organic growth market share gain. Now, uh, trucking business, different from cars. Mm-hmm. There's tremendous demand, e-commerce, th- moving things around. We know from intermodal that there's demand for trucks. You're not an auto company. We are not. We are entirely a commercial vehicle focused supplier, leading in our market categories of axles and brakes around the world. So then I start thinking, okay, well, maybe it's like Wabash National, which complained about labor costs and tariffs. But I didn't see those complaints in your in any of your quarterly decks or anything. Yeah, Wabash, great customer of ours. Right. And, uh, but we've done an excellent job of managing those costs, have a great purchasing team, good contracts that will allow us to pass on our base costs, such as steel, any rising costs there. Then I start thinking, well, maybe people think you can't make this great uh, precision instruments in America. But... Uh, not true at all. Our uh, largest engineering center is here just outside Detroit, Michigan. Uh, our largest ma- manufacturing facilities are in the southeast of the U.S. and the world. Um, and, you know, then you've got a, a kicker. This is why I mentioned secular growth, because I know this was a cloud. Electric vehicle solutions. This is something that you're caring about, you're investing mm-hmm. in, right? Mm-hmm. We believe we've become one of the leaders in that space so far. So we have a number of programs throughout the globe with every major OE uh, original equipment manufacturer in the globe to help them electrify their commercial vehicles. And you think that's the way to go? I know a lot of the truckers really like diesel power. Well, I think it's going to happen in certain narrow niches. So think about transit buses here in the metropolitan New York area. I think those will move pretty quickly to fully electric, maybe refuse vehicles. All right, now. Um, there is an asbestos liability here. To me, it mm-hmm. seems like it's contained. But the plaintiff's bar, we've seen them get very aggressive. They went after Johnson & Johnson. They caused that sky. They lost, the company's stock lost billions of dollars because they targeted J&J. I mean, is that something that maybe is an issue for people? Well, I think it is something to be concerned about for other companies. We just announced a month ago and then reiterated in this quarter, we've eliminated 70% of our net liabilities in asbestos with a prepackaged bankruptcy of a dormant subsidiary that's reached, uh, received 100% approval from the plaintiff's bar. Oh, that's very good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe there's, uh, maybe I'm missing something. Jay Powell yesterday talked about things that gotten uncertain in the month of December. I was on a Dow DuPont. Cold today. They had a terrible December. Maybe December was bad. 
Well, I think December had some discontinuity both in the stock market and right. in cement markets. We even saw truck orders take a little temporary dip back to more normal levels. But I think as you see in January, the economy and industry has come roaring back with confidence. So what is the narrative that you tell people? I mean, you have a terrific piece in, it's called Perceptions Impacting Meritor's Valuation. I mean, do you eventually just say, you know what, I, I, we're just going to buy back all the company because maybe people won't understand? Well, we are aggressively investing right. in us with buybacks. Right. And as you read in our first quarter, we actually bought back 50 million of our shares when we saw that disconnection in the equity markets in December. We jumped in and took advantage of that. But I think there are misconceptions, but understandable. We're a 110-year-old company right. and have gone under uh, underneath a, a very strong repositioning and restructuring of the company in the last five years. Well, look, I just, I, all I can tell you, keep doing what you're doing. Eventually, it, as I said when I was teaching Goldman, it has to work out. That's what we believe strongly, the board and myself. It has to. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. That's Jay Craig, the president of Meritor. Even after a blowout quarter, guys, and up 20% for the year, this stock is crazy cheap. Stick with Craig. Follow up on Facebook, not because it's necessarily that Amazon is not good, because Amazon's fine. It went up a bit, but Facebook was down so much, and it's impossible for a stock like that to go up, say, 30 points. But you know what? That only might happen. Why? Because this was the quarter that people were looking for a long time ago. It just took a two-quarter detour down as the publicity got to so many people. I think the worst is over. I like to say there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow.